You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 51. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. <laughs> Man, you had you had props. That's not fair. <laughs> we Wait, should tell I you guys the props. What were the props? I'll you show it again. So here's the deal. Um, this is our first time trying a video recording. I don't know if we're actually going to release it, so this might be a little weird. But right now, I'm sticking a Jabba the Hut original Star Wars toy in front of the camera. That's amazing. Very nice. Yeah. All right. So yeah, let's let's get into the very first thing that we always do, which is reading off odd names on the on the reviews. And by the way, there was somebody who left us one on Stitcher that I want to take a stab at because he even said, "Oh yeah, in oh, his yeah. Review, when he was like, good luck with good it, good luck with the name." I'm yeah. gonna go ahead and like for for everybody who's uh, waiting to hear that one, I'm gonna go ahead and say like this one's gonna be impossible though because it has like slashes and dashes and dots above letters that really shouldn't have those. So <laughs> I think that this is an impossible name to pronounce. I, I know I would fail miserably or fantastically at it. All right. And I'm All calling right. iTunes this time. <clears throat> All right. You go for it. All right. Uh, so iTunes reviews. I want to say a big thank you to Del Boyer, Null the Code, Sergey, Panima, Matthew Watkins, JC, JavaScripter, Connor Fee, Stratodavius, which is my favorite for this one, uh, harkening back to either Stradivarius uh, violins or Stratocaster guitars, I, I'm thinking. that's Anyway, that's what I wanted to read. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Uh, GS, uh, Leonric, Dimitri Gokun, uh, Mobilemon, Vasil, Sherbachik. <laughs> that's a Star Wars name, I'm fairly certain. All right. So... Uh, for Stitcher, we've got Tommy Rush, Do Not Ask, Noel the Code, El Programador, Tommy Snacks, Kintil Antonius Augustson, Wow, Spoon Raker, They Told Me to Write a Review, and Connor Fee. And <laughs> wow, I th- well I think, done, sir. I think I'm pretty close on that. Well one. done. I, think- I mean, I don't know if you said it right at all, but I think it was the confidence in which you said it that completely sells it. I totally said it like a boss. And hey, for anyone who... <laughs> For anyone who might not have been paying attention, did you happen to notice that two of those names were said twice? Thank two you very them? much. Null the Code. Yeah. yeah. Null the Code and Connor Fee. That's amazing. Thank you very much for doing it. And and all of you, seriously, thank you. Excellent, excellent stuff. Makes our days. And, you know, we really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Um, So, yeah. Now, now we're on to the part that everybody likes. Right. Oh yeah, the the winners. So so what do we got there? Well, we had the winners of episode fifty, but we're doing episode forty nine, right? Yeah. So I'm a little bit confused by what we wrote there. Yeah, yeah we failed the show notes. Yeah. And by we, uh, I mean me. <laughs> so so episode forty nine's winner was Viney, or would you think that'd be Vinny? Viney. Yeah, if it's one in. It, 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 it looks like Viney to me, so that's the way I'm going to pronounce it. So we'll be uh, reaching out to you uh, to see where you would like your copy of Clean Code sent to. Yep, congratulations. And uh, just a reminder, we do still have an O'Reilly discount code. Uh, while it lasts, 50% off most print and 40% off most ebooks. There's like a banner ad on the right-hand side. And uh, full disclosure, we don't have affiliate fee set up still. So go 
get stuff before we do. <laughs> well, no, I mean, even with affiliates, we wouldn't, it wouldn't cost you any more. But yeah, definitely yeah. go get that discount. We're not like going to benefit from it. Yeah. Yeah, even if we did, it'd be like maybe, 75 maybe cents that's per what, book. Everyone's waiting until we do benefit. And then they're like, oh, man, I wish they'd hurry up because I have some books I want to get for Christmas. That's totally what's happening. Yeah, go I buy like, every tech book ever. Like, every tech book you ever wanted, like all 20 of them. And uh, you'd buy us like coffee. <laughs> Fancy coffee, but coffee. And as Joe mentioned last time, you should also make sure that you follow us on Twitter, uh, like us on Facebook, join our mailing list, because when we get cool stuff to give away that we don't actually get to keep ourselves, we mention it on one of those three channels. So definitely go sign up on those or, or you know like us on those and be a part of the fun. And speaking of giving away cool stuff, you should uh, send us a self-addressed stamped envelope and we will return the favor with stickers. Yeah, Absolutely. and um, what you can do is uh, basically just um, email us and we'll send you the address. Or you can go to a new webpage that we're going to set up, uh, codingblocks.net slash swag. And we'll have information on either um, address or um, you know whatever you need to do to uh, buy cool stuff from us. Buy us that yep. coffee. And, and if you have stickers and you were one of those people that voted that you don't like putting it on your laptop, you can always do this. Put it on your case, on your phone. And that way, when you're talking, everybody uh, can see an inverted. Yeah. Anyways, uh, hey, one other thing I, I forgot to put in the show notes here that I wanted to mention. So, all of you people that have been, you know, wanting an SSD for quite a long time, I've read multiple articles recently saying that if you want to get one, go ahead and get it now because apparently there's starting to become a shortage on NAND memory, and so prices are about to start going up here towards the end of the year. So. Oh. If, if you're wanting an SSD, now's the time to get it. Uh, who knows if that's marketing garbage? I don't know. Yeah, you but. know, I've been reading these articles too, and I can't help but question. Like, do you really? I mean, you said you think it's marketing garbage. Maybe, like, who knows? Right, hard to say. Right, it, it's impossible to know. <sighs> I mean, you know, like a few years back when there was the uh, tsunami, yep. then it made sense, right? Yep. Like, why there would be a shortage on hard drives, right? Yep. Maybe maybe I'm just not in touch with the rest of the world. I haven't heard of any like major event that might you Hello? know what? Trump. It was the election. Yep. <laughs> That's Trump what it Alex, is, man. <laughs> That's what it is. Trump, you Trump, know, as Trump I was down. as I was saying it, I'm like, wait a minute. No, there totally was. Yeah. So I mean I really don't know, but you know, I've been thinking about actually getting one myself, so who knows? But, I have such affection for SSDs that I kinda want to decorate my office with them. Oh dude, they're amazing. They they, they really are awesome. So, and then we have our giveaway rules for this next episode. Like with the previous episodes, if you would like to be entered for a chance to win clean code, don't be disheartened by the fact that you haven't won in the past three or four episodes. You have yet another chance. So if you would like to try and be entered, go to www.codingblocks.net slash episode 51 and put your comment there on the page and you'll be entered for the drawing in episode 53 to win this book. So definitely go do that. And the link will be in the show notes that should show up on your phone that you could click and quickly go to the site. So do that. All right. Let's get into our next chapter in the Clean Code series. Are we ready? I believe so. Yep. Chapter 6. Objects and data structures. And I uh, got a little visual here for the people watching the video. It's actually uh, got a picture of Data, who uh, 
I, if I recall, Star Wars run the uh, poll that we did a while back, but uh, I still prefer Star Trek, even though I'm wearing a Star Wars shirt and have a Java toy on my desk. But it's still nice <laughs> yeah, to see I'm data. I'm not buying this. Yeah. <laughs> Better merch. <laughs> that's that's actually very true. Uh, I haven't seen too many data dolls around. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So and now we know why Star Wars won. Exactly. Yeah. Mystery over. So uh, this this chapter um, was kind of interesting. It wasn't as deep as I thought it would be. Uh, but one of the things that they start off right about right at the beginning is hiding implementation is about abstractions. Like a lot of times you'll see in code and we've all seen it. Like you'll basically have some sort of property and then there's getters and setters for every single property on the page. Right. And they make a very big point about at the very beginning saying that's not how you should do it. When you're writing your OO code, it should be about abstracting what's actually happening. People shouldn't have to know about the data behind the scenes. That should be hidden implementation and nobody should even care about it. Well, I I liked the point better that, that he made that you know more often than not you'll have like the actual instance field the 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 data field that's used to store that hidden you know that that part's private but then uh so many developers will then put in a uh public getter and setter uh you know either an auto property for c sharp or you know actual methods and maybe java or something else and it's like oh yeah that's that's actually a great point that you know you really are just exposing the underlying thing that you had hidden. So why bother? Yeah, totally. I mean, and even in C sharp, it's really easy to be guilty of this just by making everything an auto property, right? Oh, you know what? I said auto property, but I guess in actually that would be uh, incorrect because in C sharp, if it was an auto property, you wouldn't have a private member that you created right. uh, behind the scenes. It would be, uh, although technically that is what's happening. Yep. Yeah, and actually, and when I started reading this chapter, as soon as I saw the title, you know, Objects and Data Structures, I was like, all right, here we go. Let me go get some coffee. And then, uh, you know, I started reading it, and then I, I finished the chapter. So it was really short. I think I counted um, eight full pages, and there's some code samples in there, too. So it's just some nice tips. But one thing that threw me immediately uh, on the title was just the word, uh, ta- the combination of word, data structures. When you say data structures to me, I think trees, arrays, hash tables, lists, stuff like that. And that's not how they mean it at all here. When they say data structures, they basically mean, you know, Pocos, Pojos, whatever, um, plain objects that map or represent data. So a class that's got some properties in it. Yep, when they say I object, the, yeah, opposite. Yeah, yep, I had this same exact reaction when I saw it. I was like, oh, are we going to get into dictionaries and why it's better than the hash table? And it, No, like it totally wasn't that. But it is interesting, right? Because... It, the parts that they got into was true, pure OO, and they made a point of even saying that when you're trying to do something right in OO, it takes a lot of time and thought to actually structure things in a way that makes sense, which is, I think, one of the reasons why you end up seeing a lot of times some sort of private field with public getters and setters, because that doesn't require a lot of thought, right? Like, you know that this is the data that you want to use, and here's, you know, I'm just going to expose it all. So that I can use it however I want. I thought you were yeah, there say, was a great. Oh, oh go, so go ahead, Joe. Sorry, I thought you were going to say um, that's why we see so much bad code is because oh, writing OO stuff is hard, but uh, you know procedural code is hard in its own way. It's it's hard to maintain, and and what I mean by procedural is basically just um, 
you know, uh, functions that just a lot of functions that do stuff, kind of your, your stereotypical kind of spaghetti code, like functions all over the place, taking in arguments, doing stuff, not really um, doing a lot of model-y type things. But I did think it was interesting that it drew such a hard line between the two because when I think about like our most code bases, I kind of think about these hybrid classes that they uh, hate on a little bit later in the book. Oh yeah, definitely do hate on those. But the um, there was this really good quote that I liked that was, uh, hiding implementation is not just a matter of putting a layer of functions between the variables, which would be like what the uh, you know getters and setters would do, right? Uh, hiding implementation is about abstraction, and that a, a class should expose abstract interfaces that allow the user to manipulate the essence of the data. So he gives this example of, um, you know, there were, there were two really cool examples, but one of them that I thought like really sells it well that everyone can understand is uh, trying to get the capacity of fuel left in a car or whatever the vehicle may be, right? <clears throat> and he gives one example where you, know, you have uh, two methods and they return back doubles and one of them is like, you know, get gallons of gas and the other one is get fuel tank capacity in gallons, right? And so it's kind of making the point that like, hey, you know, based off of these names and what they're returning, like you pretty much can guess that all this thing is doing is just returning back some private double behind the scenes. And, you know, there's really uh, nothing hidden about the underlying data, uh, you know, the underlying structure of that data. You know, it's, it's pretty much kind of exposed, even though uh, there's this layer of indirection maybe in front of it. Versus the other example, which is way more abstract, which is, it also returns a double, but it's just get percent fuel remaining, right? So you have no idea what kind of measurement uh, is being used for the to, for the capacity um, or anything else about that. You know, you don't know anything about the implementation of how it's getting to that number. It's just returning you back a number. So I thought that was a really cool example. Yeah, I really like that example, and especially since um, you know, it, it is a, a vehicle specifically the the example that it's talking about, but you know, this interface could go on a number of things, you know, percent fuel remaining. That could be, uh, you know, the, the console. It could be the gas tank itself. It could be a number of different things that can share this interface. So I, I just like that example. And it doesn't even need and, to be a car, right? Right. Well, and, uh, yeah, that's why I corrected it and said just vehicle. But, um, and and it would be, yeah, <laughs> totally didn't go for this, but it would be, um, you know, it could apply to electric vehicles too. Yeah. That's right. It'd be zero <laughs> or a well, hundred. Well, yeah, yeah, but wouldn't like the the quote fuel, fuel be like it whatever be battery power left. is left? Yeah, right. electricity yeah. is left. Yeah, yeah. This was this was written slightly before hybrid cars. That's right. <laughs> or electric vehicles. No, when did we decide this was written? There were electric oh, vehicles when this was written. Yeah, they were totally. You had Golf that carts. ugly. What oh, was the, that ugly Chevy Chevrolet thing? Chevrolet yeah. thing? Yeah. Oh God, that thing was hideous. Yeah, that that was back in the day. Um. So there were a few quotes in here that were really interesting that I thought were spot on because we, we hit on this a second ago. So objects hide their data behind abstractions but expose functions to operate on the data, which is that get fuel by percentage, right, uh, or get, get percentage of fuel remaining. And then data structures expose their data but have no meaningful functions. So when you actually hear that, that makes a lot of sense, right? Like one can do things on the data, the other one just has data is really what it boils down to. And that's really important to know. Yeah, and so when they're talking about these interfaces, yeah, they're uh, just to bolster your point, um, they're talking about an object here because it's got those behaviors. And a data point would have something more concrete like, um, you know, 
total gallons and gallons left, something like that. It just represents the data. Yep. Yeah, I mean, he he makes the he actually makes the point here to say that these two are are virtual opposites of one another. That uh, you know, unless you get to Joe's weird hybrid example, that sounds like he has an opinion on. But uh, you know, there was an example of like a point that he gives right, and uh, this one I think this well actually no I'll take that back that one might have been I got I can look at that code again I think he might have meant that one as a uh, I was going to say he meant that one as a as a data structure but I think he meant it more as an object now that I think about it because he was actually given methods for um, reading it. Yeah, and I, I, the reason I think it's so interesting that they split it up is because I think my default is probably to make these hybrids. Like, I'll start by modeling the data, so I'll create like a you know, say a vehicle class, and I'll give it the, those two points of properties, uh, you know, for the total gas tank and the uh, or the max gas and the current gas, and then I would just go ahead and add the method there, like just not even thinking about it. Like, oh, you want another percentage? Well, I'll go ahead and add it here as a nicety. But, you know, and it makes sense to keep it here since this is a common place for me to use it. If I know about the vehicle, then, you know, it makes sense that I want to know this. And so it's interesting that my default is a, is a bad behavior. I think that's most everybody's. I do the same thing, right? Like you think about what your data points are, and then you think about the functionality you need out of it. And I don't know that that's a bad approach. I, it's like we've talked about before, right? Pretty much everything you do, you should just hammer it out, get it in there, and then start refactoring it out. Because trying to start at the... The utopian place is just a non-starter usually, right? Like you end up thinking yourself into a corner and you never get anything done because you're like, oh, I, you know, you can think of five million other ways to do it. And so you just really get stuck as opposed to putting it in there, taking a look at it and then get and then iterating on it. Because, I mean, how many people use things like rational rows anymore or, you know, UML type <laughs> things to actually get rolling? You know what I'm saying? Yep. Uh, if they do, they're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm doing it wrong all, all the time, apparently. So, uh, yeah, I, I like the idea of keeping things split out, though. You know, I can't really come up with an argument against it, except for class explosion. You know, you're going to have more files. But I like the idea that there's only one reason for these things to change. You know, if I add a property, I go add it to the data file. If I'm changing the behavior of some data, which may be in uh, any number of places, then I should go modify the objects. Hey, we talked about this way back in the day, I think, when we talked about solid, because you you mentioned the class explosion. I think back when we did the solid episode, one of you guys threw out the fact that there was some application, it seems like it was Facebook, or, or maybe some sort of Java app out there, that they just had like thousands and thousands of files and like tons of methods and subroutines. Like there was... They had literally just broken everything down to the most minute of points. Do you remember either of you guys? Sorry, I, I don't was remember that specific example now. Uh, drawing a blank. Yeah. Man, I, I, it seems like it might have been the Facebook. I mean, where were you going app. with it, though? It just, just the whole idea of class explosion isn't really that bad. Like, because you end up as long as things are done in a maintainable way, which it seems like having a hundred files for subclasses seems like that might not be great. I thought we were just joking about that though. Like that it would like, if you tried to adhere to solid, then you'd have like, uh, you know, a thousand files and nothing would ever do anything. They would all just be interfaces. I mean, I remember us making that joke several times. Yeah. And I I do agree. That's a pain in the butt. And I think the, the, the reason that a lot of people balk about it, if they, um, if, if, 
I don't want to say if, but the reason a lot of people balk at it is because they think, oh, I'm going to have to make a change and I'm going to go have to change it in 20 places. But ideally, you're composing the stuff. So by breaking stuff into these little pieces, the theory is that you don't have to make changes. The whole reason you're breaking stuff up is to minimize the number of things that you change when you make a change. And so if you're doing things, quote unquote, right, which is basically impossible, then you should be you know, making less work for yourself, not more. Yeah, true. I mean, th- this whole this whole chapter that was more about thinking about the data that your object is going to interact with, um, and not necessarily like because I, I feel like when we talk about solid, for example, we're not really talking about the the, the data that the, the class uh, is operating on. But this chapter, that's what that's what we're talking about. Even though it is like objects and data structures, right? Like it's still how the object might. Uh, use and interact and, and uh, work on data, but you know, with the intent of trying to not expose the details of that data, right? And and trying to get into this mindset of thinking of that data in abstract terms, right? So going back to the gas tank example, don't think about it in the literal. This is the uh, you know capacity of the tank and the you know current um, you know amount of fuel in the tank. Right, but instead thinking of it in something more abstract, like this is the percentage of fuel left, or don't right? expose it directly. Right, <laughs> don't don't give them access directly to those underlying data structures. Um, yeah. So here, here's a here's one way to think about it. Like if you think about a hybrid class, let's say you've got something that represents a, a, a piece of email, right, and you want to mark this email as um, sent, right, after you've kind of created it, done some stuff, it's been queued, whatever, it's actually been sent. You know, mail server said okay. One way to do that would be to have a class that represents the mail and it's got the to, the from, the yada, yada. And it's also got a method called mark as sent. And it goes out to the database and it says, you know, update is sent equal one, whatever. Um, that's kind of the, the hybrid approach, right? So it's got properties mixed in there. It's got some methods in there and it's fine. Another way to do it if in more singly, solidly, responsibly, whatever, is to have uh, one class that just models the data structure. So it's got the two, it's got the body, it's just got the data, right? And then you've got another method that um, knows how to save this, or sorry, another object that knows how to save. So it takes in the mail message and knows how to save it. And then you've got a third one that says, you know, it's got some other behaviors like says mark as send. And all mark as send does is takes the data, marks the sent flag as one, and then tells the saver to save it. And so it, it is more classes, but it's just more composable. I, I I can't help but think about this, like, because we were joking about everything in solid being all interfaces, right? So, like, as you're describing this, I'm picturing, like, in my mind, okay, so I picture a class that implements an I email interface <laughs> yeah. and an I savable interface. And the I savable interface provides two methods one to actually do the save and one to mark the save. Yep. It, it's and and we'll get arguments on the fact that it oh, should yeah. start with I. But yeah. <laughs> well, I say all you got to do, but it's uh, all you got to do is create these nine classes. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like files. it ends up turning into that, right? But where you should start is getting it functional and then breaking it down further if you don't have hard, you know, hardcore specs to push it out in the first place. I'm kind of backing um, off that idea, though, because I feel like if you just start with make it functional first, then you're probably not going to go back and refactor it. And you're probably not going to make it testable. So I kind of like the idea of instead of saying make it functional first, say 
make it testable first. And that starts for, that's kind of for legacy code. Like if you can try to keep with that mentality, I know it's impractical, impractical a lot of the times, but I'm trying to kind of convert to that mindset. Actually, you know what? I, I attended a meetup with uh, Will where they had done extreme programming, pair programming, and they had kind of walked through an entire role-playing situation with it. And, you know, doing the test first isn't really that hard. If you actually <laughs> sit down and dedicate yourself to doing it, it's really not that big of a deal. So, I mean, you might be onto something, and, and that almost forces you to refactor as you go, right? Because they even did the same thing. So they would set up a test, and then they would do whatever they needed to make that test pass, and then they would try and clean it up a little bit, right? Well, so, yeah, I mean, we talked about this, I think, in the last episode, right? The test-driven development, that if you're going, if you were truly going by, oh, uh, yeah, it was, because last one was comments. No, it was two episodes be- before that were comments, right? Doesn't matter. I, don't remember. I think it was like 49. <clears throat> But, uh, yeah, we, we were talking about, like, if you were truly following the test-driven development format, right, then you write your test first, you write the bare minimum amount of code that makes the test pass, and then you refactor, yep. right? So that those were like the, you know, the, the circle of life in a TDD world, right? And that, you know, if you were following TDD, then you never have an opportunity to comment on the code because never in the TDD lifecycle does it say, Okay, write the test. Now write the comments about what you're going to write and then write the code and then refactor and then refactor your comments and then test and then Yeah, you yeah, just do it. It's never a thing. Right. So but I mean going back to what you just said though, Joe, like I feel like the refactoring thing's still there. Right. You still want to write your code in a way that makes sense. But then at some point, and we've talked about this in the past, if you have to revisit something and put in an if else then maybe that one time's fine. But if you have to come back again and do another else, then at that point you start needing to think about, wait a second, if there's all these cases and I need to probably pull this thing out into some type of subclass or, or something like that, right? So I don't know. I think, I think the refactoring is still a key, piece to, a key piece to it. Yeah, just uh, the testability things is um, just kind of rough. And I, I feel like if you don't add it up front or if you don't, you know, pay that investment down, then it just doesn't happen. And uh, it, the code gets harder and harder to test, and it, it's kind of digging yourself out of a hole, right? So uh, I'm just trying to approach things from that viewpoint and writing the test when I can and trying to at least start there. And even if nine times out of ten, I end up just saying, this is too difficult to, to write a test uh, that makes sense, then you know whatever. But at least starting with that thought and trying to make things better. Yeah, true. Did we hit this point right here? Nope. Nope. We need to. Oh, yeah. No, this was a really good one. Uh, yeah, this was this was awesome, actually. So pr- procedural code, code using data structures, makes it easy to add new functions without changing the existing data structures. OO code, on the other hand, makes it easy to add new classes without changing existing functions. And so that's really important, right? Like, and this is where having the book will help you a lot because this, this particular chapter was extremely code sample heavy. Um, but when they were showing the procedural thing, like they had the whole notion of a shape and then they had like a circle, a square and, and that kind of stuff. And basically they'd have a function in procedural code, something like get area. And then it would say, Hey, if the object passed in was type square, then do width times height. If the object passed in was a circle, then do, you know, whatever that formula is, what pi r squared or whatever. So, 
the thing is now, if you come in and add a triangle later, now you got to go back in and touch the code that touches all that other stuff. If you just had a class and you introduced a new triangle class and OO methods, then you would just have to implement that area and you do it for each individual class. So that was really the big distinction between the two. And I think that's a really easy way for people to be able to see it. But here's the, here's the best part of this, though, right? <clears throat> so it also said that the complement is true, right, of the quote that you said. So, um, you know, summarize, you said that the procedural code makes it easy to add new functions without changing data structures. OO makes it easy to add new classes without changing functions, right? And the, so the complement of that was true is that procedural makes it hard to add new data structures because of all the functions that must change, which is the example you just gave. And OO makes it hard to add new functions because of all the classes that must change, yep. right? And, and my favorite takeaway from this chapter was this quote that he says, so, all of, so the things that are hard for OO are easy for procedures, and the things that are hard for procedures are easy for OO. So there is no, there's no win. <laughs> yeah. Well, it kind of goes back to, do you remember uh, an episode or two ago, we were talking about, um, uh, you know, I, I was, I was sharing some of the things from a recent conf specifically uh, from connect tech. Right. And, mm -hmm. and uh, actually one of the listeners, James, uh, there was a functional uh, talk that he gave and he was making the comment about like, Hey, you know, if you were a builder, right, then your tools of the trade might be a saw, a screwdriver, and a hammer. And you would never say, hey, dude, we're using hammers from now on. They are the new awesome thing, right? right? And no more screwdrivers, no more saws. We're just going to use hammers everywhere we can. But yet, you know, in uh, code programming circles, right, you often hear developers talk about things like where it's like, oh, no, man. No, you should totally be using functional programming for everything that you can use. You should do functional programming, or you should try to avoid inheritance. Inheritance is so evil, man. It's 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 right. composition all the way nowadays. I don't know if you've been reading Reddit, but that's that's you know if you yeah. check Hacker News, this is what you should be doing, right? And so like those are like those kind of conversations happen in happen in uh, programming circles, right? And and you know Uncle Bob here is making the point that like well, you know. There are things that are easy for procedural, and there's things that are easier for OO. Or use them. Blah, yeah. For OO. Use them appropriately. Yep. I like that. And uh, just yeah. to kind of to think about it a little bit, so I can think of examples of procedural code all day long, like a you know, checkout process for a website. Like I go get the data structure representing the user. I get the data structure uh, representing the cart. I get... You know the the checkout object, whatever. I get you these get data structures. Money. Oh, yeah. I go out. I do charge. I go do these procedural type things. I say get this, then do this, then do this, then do that. Very procedural. What's an example of OO code? Uh oh. In which part? Oh, wait. <laughs> I mean, uh, like so. So for instance, like in the checkout process, right? Like when you go to get money. So the procedural way would be if paying with credit card, go do this. If paying with PayPal, go do this. If paying with Amazon, go do this. Instead of that, you would have like an iPayment, right? And that iPayment would be like charge customer, what we'll call it, right? And then so the the payment instrument passed in could be of type PayPal. It could be of type credit card. It could be of type whatever. So you're mixing the two still, right? You're still going to have your procedural things because you still need steps to be followed. But then when you get to certain portions where 
where there are different things that do the same general thing but have different implementations, that's where your OO comes into play, right? Okay, cool. So in a checkout example, we're adding PayPal now before we only took credit cards. In a procedural example, now it's easy to add new functions without changing the existing data structure. So I add a data structure for PayPal, so like new database tables or something. And um, I'm able to add new functions without changing anything. Um, but in the OO example, I can add a new class representing uh, PayPal, and I don't have to worry about changing anything because I'm literally not you know, touching any code in the credit card stuff. It's totally isolated. Right. Well, wouldn't it be more like in the OO example, you would just have like one method charge, right? Right, And you don't even know what type of payment system you got. You just like, I know I've got something that implements this uh, interface, or maybe I have a, a pointer of this type, and I'm going to just you know run the charge method, call the charge method on that type, and uh, it's going to call the right one based on the actual type that that method is, right? Yep. Yeah, like the interface There's billing method, right? Example. So a billing yep. method dot charge, and you don't care. Except for PayPal, it has all sorts of weird back and forth stuff that makes that really And difficult. I can never remember the name of that in OO terminology. Of what? Ah, oh, that thing that I just described. Like Polymorphism? There you yeah, go. Polymorphism. Thank you. Yeah, because, so, I mean, the, the difference is if you're going to do all that procedural, you'd literally have an is-elf, an is-elf, right? An if-elf. Yeah, you should have an is-elf. <laughs> an is-elf. So, <laughs> yeah, you is wish elf? one is-elf. It, is <laughs> it is that time of year, isn't it? <laughs> what, uh, is elf equal true? You never add just one if. You add the Santa. if on the checkout page, and you add an if at the you know confirmation, and you add an if, you add an if, you add an if, you add an if. And that's the thing. So so let's take this example a little bit further, and this is why it's important. So in procedural ways that you go about this, and we talked about this a couple of chapters ago, and I don't even remember which one it was, but the whole idea is if you find yourself doing a switch statement somewhere, chances are you're going to be putting that in a lot of places. Gremlins. And so you you are now, yeah, gremlins, and you're creating procedural code all over the place because you're saying, if this, then do this. So in your checkout process, if PayPal, then go make this call to this website API. If if it's a credit card, then make this call to your credit card processor, right? Like So that's all your procedural. So guess what? Now when you go to do a refund, you're going to have the same if-else condition, and you better hope that you caught them all because otherwise you're going to have a problem. Well, what? remember, this is the book that was talking about that uh, you should only be using those switch statements inside of factories. And that's what I'm saying. So because the problem is if you don't, now you're definitely not using OO, and you're going to have to you're going to have to basically copy and paste those those switch statements everywhere you're doing a new piece of functionality, which is your procedural code, right? So that's really where you start getting that divide, and that's where things become very important of drawing that line. Yep, which is a good time to bring up the law of Demeter, which is the next section, and this is one of the things um uh, one of those things I've looked up like at least every couple months like because i always just forget you know i know principle of least knowledge but there's some specific rules around it but uh, i just always have a hard time remembering this guy uh, and there's some really arduous um, definitions and um, uh, the simplest way i can think of to boil it down is to say that a method of a class so a method should only call methods or properties in its own class right methods or properties on objects created in that method or objects passed in via arguments. Right. So this was kind of, uh, you know, if, if we skip ahead into the train wreck conversation. Uh, well, actually, you know what? Before we do that, 
there was one thing I wanted to comment, which, which was just a quote about the uh, mature programmers know that it, everything that everything that the idea that everything is an object is a myth, um, which I thought was a good one. But uh, I don't know. Do we want to get in the train wreck? Because we actually had that. Uh, yeah, I say up let's wait for that a little bit. I, I kind of like talking about the law of Demeter just because it's an interesting thing, and I know that it's going to come up uh, here in a few minutes. But um, I was I was kind of interested to see that it was. Um, written about initially in 1987, which is a lifetime ago. So it's interesting to see that people were still kind of talking about it. And that's, I guess, when kind of OO was first kind of coming around. So it's interesting to see that people are still struggling with it, like, you know, 30 <laughs> years later. Dude, uh, well, l- let's clarify some things <laughs> here, right? Because it says methods or properties in its own class, right? So to expand this out a little bit further in OO, it would also be the subclasses, like any kind of inherited property type stuff, right? Like anything that is within the ecosystem of that particular class yep. is really what we're talking about, right? Well, but, yeah, I really want to skip ahead. No, we can't skip ahead. You can't do that. We, we All right, it. fine. i tell you what. Can we can we go ahead and do... Uh, let's see what you got here. Well, so, right, go so why is this important? Things. First of all, why, like, why do we even care what we talk to? Why can't I just go and, and talk to methods in other classes? Oh, dude. It, so it, tight coupling, right? Like all of a sudden, you now have this dependency that you have to have there. Yep. And... and I, I, being that I haven't read ahead as far as I should have on this one, like I always think about it as like the puppet master, right? Like what it's just what you said here, whatever's creating objects knows about those objects. So it's, it's fine to talk to all its kids, right? Because it created those kids. It can do whatever it wants with them, yep. but those kids shouldn't even know about each other. Right. They, they, they shouldn't, they shouldn't be, intertwined at all and if any interaction needs to happen between two kids it should go through the parent right whoever created that kid yep should be the mediator and the thing is you don't uh, all the times you won't end up with one puppet master that wouldn't be such a big deal what ends up happening is you have a bunch of puppet masters and they're all kind of got these weird dependencies on each other you can't even really see what's going on and then it's untestable because you know some of those dependencies inevitably talk to you know things that are hard to test and hard to mock out and so you just got these ties all over the place and that's literally where the term you know spaghetti code comes from so just stuff tied together all over the place yeah i this is funny this leads me into something that is somewhat not related but somewhat sort of related and it comes up in our slack all the time like I'd say this question comes up or this particular comment comes up once a week, maybe more frequently. Hey, what should I do? Should I do angular two? Should I do react react? And, and (laughs) so, so here's the funny part. Like my answer, even though I'm not as familiar with react, my answer is almost always react. And the reason is if you actually buy into the fuller ecosystem to where you do react plus redux, if you're doing web development, the thing is, is it does exactly what Joe just said. Instead of having all these like, you know, tendrils that leach out all over the place and you can't follow it, like Angular 1, dude, you get into multiple bindings and you cannot make heads or tails of anything. And if something goes wrong, it is, it, it, it's frustrating. With React, it's got this one-way data flow if you're using Redux, to where you can actually just see, okay, this talks to that, that thing over here, admitted event, that went to this. And, and it's like a big circle. Like you can literally follow it. And to me, a big one-way circle. Yes. And so 
it's very easy to reason how things are happening and when they happen and why they happen. And that's important. And that goes to this law of Demeter right here is if these methods only talk to things that it knows about because it created it or because it was a part of its own class, you now have something that is very easy to reason. When you start breaking that rule, man, things go wrong. And, and I've seen people do like global variables and we all did them, right? Like the very first thing you did when you started coding anything is you made some global variables because they were easy to access. Heck yeah. and, then all of a, and then all of a sudden you couldn't figure out why things were going wrong because everything was touching it, right? So, yeah. Um, I got so much I want to add to this, but I don't want... You're going to step on ahead. the future stuff? Right. Yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying so hard not to, man. Well, let's get to it then. Uh, I'm like, uh, just have like a, I need a zipper. <laughs> yeah. And then throw away a key. All right. Well, we'll be back with a, a right after these words from ourselves. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Our own sponsor. Yeah. Us. So if you want to sponsor the podcast, you should write to us. <laughs> yeah, you totally should. Yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. And in the meantime, we're loving those this reviews. This episode sponsored so by much. Joe's mom. Uh, oh, uh, man, that's not. Come man. on. What if his mom right. wanted to sponsor? <laughs> why, uh, why would you deny her that? <laughs> now who's being mean? I uh, wasn't being mean. I mean, just move along before. before <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we love those reviews. So keep them coming because we really appreciate it. That's how we find uh, new new listeners. And that's really huge to us. And uh, so we, we love reading them. And uh, thank you. So uh, please leave us reviews. And you can go to codingbox.net slash reviews to do that. Joe, you look like you're going to fall asleep. We need I to am. pass some caffeine across the wire here. <laughs> and everyone can see me squinting more and more as the episode goes on now if you watch this video. Can, yeah. can we can we do that yet? Because if you can, I I'll take some of that caffeine, pass it along. <laughs> Why are you holding out on me? I, I you're right there. <laughs> oh, um. All right. So let's get into my favorite section of the show. Survey says. All right. So the last survey was the new Mac Pro with Touch Bar. Is it? A, amazing. Apple's done it again. They've predicted the future, and Touch Bar is it. Or is it horrible? Give me my function keys back. Or is it, well, the jury is out. I'll wait and see what others are saying before I pass judgment. So I pick Joe. You go first. Well, obviously, nobody is going to wait to pass judgment because, you know, this is the Internet after all. So I'm right. going to say uh, death, 90%. Uh, <laughs> horrible. Give me my function keys. Give me back my function keys by uh, 90%. Yep. Now, remember, wow. Price is Right rules, right? We're, we're mixing you know, Family Feud and Price is Right here. Dude, 89%. That's, 89%. That's, that's brutal. Okay. Hey, I'll tell you why I'm about to pick what I'm going to pick. Because you guys remember when the iPad came out, I was like, dude, who is going to pay $500 for an enlarged iPhone that has no cellular connection, right? Like that, I was obviously very wrong. So I think that a lot of people are going to say, I'm going to wait and see uh, the jury's out on it. So I'm going to say that's that one at 45%. All right. Well, this is interesting because uh, you, 
both split it up, so that makes it cool. And like I think the last one where you picked the same thing. <laughs> so survey says you're both wrong. Really? If we're playing by if we're playing by okay. Price is right. Rules. One of us picked the right answer. So got In which case, I would say that Joe is more correct than Alan. Yeah, boy. Wow. Because he yeah. picked the right answer. So it's not so, <laughs> Well, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, totally. Like forty six percent of the vote was horrible. Give me back my function keys. Wow. And forty four percent of the vote was the jury is out. <laughs> oh, I was close. Wait, no, I won. No, I was off by a percent. Yeah, you missed it by a percent. That's Jeez. what I'm saying. Like by Price is Right rules, you lose. Wow, that's ridiculous. But I, nobody so that, said it was a good thing. Well, no, a few. Well, people. no, there were there were some people surprisingly okay. that what, were twelve like, <laughs> percent. And and here was the thing: is like I kind of felt, and I read this in like um, I don't remember if it was like you know some other like well known place like an Engadget or something like that. And uh, they had a similar, like after we had recorded and posted this, they had a similar uh, topic that came up and I actually thought, oh, theirs is actually worded better because it was, um, you know, the, regarding the new Mac Pro, like, well, okay, which is better, having this touch bar or just having a touch screen? Touch screen, totally. Like, why wouldn't you just make the touch? And, and when, they, when they wrote that, I'm like, oh, yeah. The whole time I was looking at this new Mac Pro, I, that never even that thought. The only thought that occurred to me was, "Oh my God, I hate this Touch Bar." Oh no, man! I've been wanting a Surface Book version of a Mac for so long, and I don't think it's. I think Apple's just being Apple, and they're just not going to make it because that's what everybody wants. No, no, no. I, I'm with you. I'm like, I'm saying what I'm saying is like, if you were going to add touch to anything, why didn't you just make it a touch screen rather than the Touch Bar? Yeah, like leave the inputs, the input devices as is, but. You know, like you said, time will tell. Maybe this thing will be a huge, uh, you know, success. I I am more in the jury is out category personally, only because uh, I I'm I concerned. Would that be the right choice of words for it? Probably not. But I I kind of feel like I'm, I'm doubtful that it will be correct in my usage pattern, which is multiple OS on the right. same piece of hardware. So, you know, like trying to go through a VM and with that touch bar, I feel like that's probably not going to work. So like, you know, if it's a parallels or a VMware or a bootcamp, I just feel like that's probably not going to work. And then if you are booted directly into one of those, you know, into that OS via bootcamp, for example, I just don't have a lot of faith that the drivers are going to be great there either. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I did read a few things about the touch bar, and one thing that people seem to love is the volume slider. Because <sighs> it, it, it... Really? It, so I kind of get it. Like, you don't have to, like, you know, tap, tap, tap to go up and down, right? I get that. The The other piece of feedback that I've seen is that people hate the fact that it's not tactile, right? Like, if they oh, right. put that same force touch that's in the mouse up there in the bar so that when you actually click something, you feel something like it did something that would be huge. And then the other thing is they feel like so much of what has been done for it so far is kind of gimmicky, right? Like it's, it's to show that those features are there, but hopefully as software, you know, people start writing the software to take advantage of it, then maybe they'll do some things that actually make sense. But yeah, it, it's hard to say yet. Well, I got to tell you some of the examples they showed 
in the in the keynote speech for it, I was like, oh, that'd be horrible. I, I totally wouldn't want to do it. And maybe it's because I just have like fat, chubby fingers because like they showed trying to scrub through like a timeline of something. And I'm like, well, now I can't see it because my fat, chubby fingers in the way. <laughs> yeah, it's covering like, up half the touch part. Yeah. <laughs> I got this meat paw in the way. Like, what? how do I get to see what I actually want to see? I can't. Yeah, I don't love it. I really want a touch screen, but I guess we beat up that survey. Yeah, so. I'm not I'm not so crazy about this touch screen as much as you are, though. But yeah. Um, all right. So then there's, you know, our, the next survey, right? So we did have, um, uh, you know, a comment. So I guess there was some controversy about some things that were said in the previous episode. And, uh, so one of the, there was no controversy. There was you. Well, there was comments. Everyone else. There was comments. (laughs) Let's put it that way. There was discussion. You know, discussion is good. The important thing is is that you get people talking. Yes. Agreed. Okay. So so I'll take that as a success. I gotta get it where I can. Um but there was a the idea thrown out there about like, well, hey, why don't we make the next survey about uh, you know, the ordering uh you know, preferred uh way to order methods uh within a class. And, you know, I thought about that, I'm like, yeah, maybe. But I really feel like that's going to make for boring uh, show fodder because I can already guess that Joe and Alan are going to guess the exact same answer (laughs) with almost identical results. (laughs) So that's why I was like, ah, it seems like that would be a boring survey, though, right? How would you know what we'd pick? I I just... (laughs) Just... um, you know, a gut feeling, maybe. Uh, it, I hope you haven't been in Slack, because, yeah, that, that feeling would be overwhelming. <laughs> I mean, if I had to guess now, I would probably say, like, um, you know, one of those answers would have at least one vote, <laughs> and the other answer might have the rest of the Internet. And that's data structure hiding right there. Because you would say percentage of this versus percentage of that, <laughs> but but okay okay so so not to okay I totally don't want to get back into the 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 newspaper uh, versus alphabetical. Uh, well, just the whole the whole newspaper holy war. Like I didn't even realize. Like that, I think that was like part of the thing that was almost as shocking to me was just like oh my god I didn't realize that this was like a holy war thing. You know like like. If you start, if you get into like a VAR Wars conversation, if you even hear somebody talking about that, like you're sitting at your cubicle and you hear somebody, you're like, oh God, I'm staying out of that. I already know where this is going. I'm putting on my headphones and we're going to crank up the bass and this is done, right? Like, you, you know you know where that conversation is going. If someone starts talking to you about tabs versus spaces, you're like, well, date night's over. And you, know, <laughs> you, don't, you don't bother, right? I didn't, I did not realize that this was as, uh, as heated as it was. So, was you know, that was Okay, maybe heated was a choice. <laughs> I don't know I like this is a holy war. This is more like, like one man stand against society. Right. I was thinking the same thing. Like, in a game of risk, if you have one, okay, one soldier on this side and, like, a thousand tanks on this, this side, is, totally is that a war? <laughs> this is totally fair. <laughs> okay, so we'll call it... We'll call it the last stand. <laughs> totally fair. Although I do really like how high pitched Joe's voice got just a minute ago. We're like, is it really? 
Um, I don't even know if I did it correctly there, but, but yeah, so it made me like, like truly it made me have some reflection on this though, because honestly, and, and I don't mean insults to anyone, but like everybody made all these cases for like, why? And I'm like, yeah, okay. I, I mean, I get that, but, uh, yeah, you haven't convinced me. Like I'm not, not that it's your job to convince me, but, but, um, you know, it's a, you know, I, I hear your case, but I, I just don't see it. Right. And the one person who I want, and I wanted to give him credit because the one person who I think came the closest with any kind of comment or feedback or whatever you want to call it, that was more persuasive to, you know, at least get me to start thinking about like, well, okay, fine was JW. So on the comments for episode 50, and if you haven't already read it, I'm going to, I'm not going to read it for you. Uh, it's, it's a little bit, um, you know, long, but you can go to episode 50 and, and read it. And he, he really made some good points there, but in general, and, and this wasn't even like the exact wording that he said, but like at least the general tone that I took away from it was, well, we have things that we consider to be, you know, uh, best practices, right? And maybe we can't always uh, adhere to those best practices, and maybe that best practice doesn't fit every scenario, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for that best practice, right? So even though, like, time and again, I was able to, like, poke holes into the newspaper metaphor uh, <laughs> and, and you know, things that I felt like, well, these are the reasons why I don't like it, right? Like, here's all the scenarios. I don't know why you're laughing. Here's all the <laughs> scenarios. No, seriously. Here's, you know, I, I listed, like, you know, multiple scenarios. There were, like, real-world scenarios where it's like, oh, this, this is where you can't put things in a, a newspaper metaphor, right? Real-world scenarios where you can't. So, you know, he, he at least got me, I mean, his, his comment alone didn't persuade me, but it did get me thinking because prior to his comment, I was honestly just more leaning towards, you know what, maybe, maybe I should just more embrace random because going to Alan's point in the last one, you made the, you, you said, um, uh, there was some comment that you made where, um, something along, it was some quote, there was something along the lines of, um, saying that, uh, how did you word it? Something about like not having a, a, an IDE, not having an IDE to use was just a cop out. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, if we take that case, right, then I should just embrace the ID that I have, in which case it doesn't matter where it is. So, okay, fine. Just add them wherever you feel like adding them. Right. But, but it was, and then shortly thereafter was when JW's comment came in. That was kind of like, okay, fine okay, I take that point, right? Like there is this best practice and maybe I should try to embrace this thing. And, you know, cause I didn't realize this was as heated as it was. So it, it did make me go and look at like, um, it made me think like, well, man, like real world examples. Have I just been missing, misreading this this whole time? And I just thought like they were in this ugly mess of random ordering. And yet this whole time they've been in some kind of a newspaper, uh, metaphor, right? And so I actually found some like interesting results in that, that, that like, um, so for example, I think it was last episode that we had talked about Microsoft being one of the largest contributors to GitHub. Right. Mm -hmm. So I thought, Hey, how does Microsoft do it? Right. I mean, we're using, 
you know, well, we as .NET developers are using a lot of their tools, right, and their frameworks and everything. And now that uh, they've open sourced .NET, let me look under the covers of .NET. I'm curious to see how their actual code is done. And, you know, because for so many years, I've been looking at their code through the eyes of a decompiler, right? Um, and so I was like, okay, well, how is their code actually written? And so I found some interesting examples where, you know, it was just kind of ugly. And, but yet, for the most part, not entirely, it was in a newspaper metaphor uh, case, but there was access level uh, intermixed in there. And I remember that in the last episode, um, Joe had specifically kind of gotten tripped up on like, oh, gross, you know, now if you do it alphabetically, uh, you'd be sorting your, your privates to the top and your publics to the bottom, where I had tried to make the point uh, a couple times that no, 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 uh, you know, the, the accessor was like, you know, like consider that like a primary sort and method name was a secondary, right? So the publics were, were still up above, but it made me go back and realize like, oh, wait a minute. You know, if you look back at that chapter, uh, he doesn't really talk about accessor level, mm-hmm. right? Like he doesn't talk about, except for, except for like private instance members, that's the only thing that he talks about, but like uh, public and private methods, he never refers to like, oh, you should have these uh, separated one way or the other, Right which I think was kind of like what you were talking about last time, Joe, about like not having your private methods in, in your public's mi- intermixed, right? Did yep. I misinterpret that? Yes, but we are absolutely stepping into this argument again. No, so. no, no. I'm not trying to. Uh, I'm honestly know, not trying to. When, no, I'm just telling you my findings. I know, this, but then it's going to make me so, want to tell you my findings. <laughs> well, but I think you can find like examples a, of, of code with controversial decisions all over the place. You know, Microsoft or, or whoever. You know, it's I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen a real world example of you know good. No, what I'm saying. Code. The, well, hold on. The point, the takeaway from that though was that I saw that Microsoft had it intermixed, and then that made me go back and think like, oh wait a minute, and then that's when I realized, oh well, Uncle Bob didn't even specify the the access level. So I wasn't trying to like restart the argument. It was just more like, oh this this. This finding made me go back and relook at, uh, re- reinvestigate the words, right? Yes. Uh, so somebody's opened your mind up, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there, there, um, yeah. I mean, I, I guess like the takeaway is like, well, okay. I'm not, I'm not bullish enough to say like, I know everything and that's ever, I, mean, you know, I can never be convinced of anything. So, like, based off of all the strong responses, like, okay, well, obviously this is a thing. It would be foolish of me to not, uh, you know, try to try to go this way. So I'm like, okay, fine. I'm actually going, you know, start going this, this direction and see, you know, I mean, it'll take some time, obviously, you know, maybe, uh, eventually I'll be like, okay, yeah, I like this way better. Or maybe I'm eventually like, oh God, no, I I still hate it, but you know, it seems to be the thing. So I'll do it or whatever. Right. I don't know yet. We'll, We'll see. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was, there, there was, there was other, some, some other things too, where like, um, some comments like you mentioned in the Slack channel about like, well, IntelliJ automatically sorts it or whatever. And I actually found out at least for ReSharper, which I got to assume that they're using similar engines. It doesn't the, the, as best as I could tell with ReSharper that the, the comment was that if you extract a method using IntelliJ or ReSharper, that it would automatically put the, the new method in news in newspaper metaphor order. Right. 
And what I found was that it doesn't necessarily. What it really does more uh, without without much uh, logic behind it, I guess you could say. Um, not trying to like belittle it, but it just literally puts whatever code you abstracted or, or extracted directly below the method that you're currently in, and it'll keep doing that. So, um, yeah, I see. So it doesn't you know, go in order; it go it kind of stacks them. So it'll kind of yes, but it'll stack them like like if you extract. Let's say you have like a really long long method, right? And you extract a little bit, and then it takes that method, puts that below the really long one, and then you extract a second method that maybe is called after that previous one that you just extracted, and it'll again just put it directly after the really long one. So now it's before the previously extracted one. And if you just kept re-extracting new methods, right, it's just going to keep tacking them on, uh, you know, after the long method. Right. So they'll just keep stacking on top of the new extractions, right? And, and it'll also not care about accessor level, right, which is where I was kind of going back with, you know, rereading the, the, that portion of the book was that it, it you know, uh, ReSharp or IntelliJ, the, well, I still haven't played around with IntelliJ as, as much, but uh, at least for ReSharper, it will, um, it doesn't care like, you know, public, private, internal, whatever. It, it'll just literally mix them in top. But it also made me question too, then, and because I couldn't find this answer, was that in the newspaper metaphor, um, you know, if you have, let's say you have a total of three methods, right? Method one calls methods two and three. We're spending a lot okay. of time talking about what's not the survey this episode. Yes. But, but, but what I'm asking you guys, though, I'm asking you guys a question, which, well, this isn't the survey, but is the um, um, method one calls, if, if method one calls methods two and three, then does the order of two and three matter, right? Because in the, I didn't see that in the newspaper metaphor, right? It didn't really call that out. And going back to like an IntelliJ or something like that, uh, you know, it, they didn't put it in that order. Like they didn't put them in the order, you know? It was like literally just extracting it and stacking them on top of one another. It was just curi- a curious finding, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely not the way I'd so, expect it. Um, so it's kind of like a, it's like, it's almost like the worst, <laughs> the worst way to do it. But, oh, what? Uh, stacking them like that? Yeah. Like it did? Yeah, and and I and and, and uh, I, I got kind of curious too because like there was this uh, the finesse project that was referenced in here, and it's an open source project too. So I went poking around at it, and I actually found some stuff where it didn't adhere to the newspaper metaphor. <laughs> so I couldn't help but find that kind of funny. But that goes back to your point about like you know nothing's going to be perfect, right? I mean, there's always going to be like uh, you know little things here and there. Yeah. So what's our new survey? <laughs> <laughs> so. So, Alan, with a no answer there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess the takeaway was just that, you know, I'm going to try it, whatever. Uh, all right. So, the new survey is uh, re- there was a conversation that we had related to tables, right? So, you need to add a new column to a table, and you know that that column will more often than not be null. All right. So, do you add them to the existing table because that's where they belong? is I guess leading the jury or, or your second option is create a related table that will only have the records when needed. Well, that's also leading, right? Yeah. Cause now you're going to have less, less records. Yeah. Those, so, those are your two options. 
So maybe an example is like you've got a user table and you want to add uh, like a super user column, right, to designate some guys as uh, some people as having, you know, elevated permissions. And you know that you're going to have, say, less than 1% of these users marked as super users. Do you go ahead and add the column and then have, you know, say you've got a million records, 999,000 records with null or, you know, null, see, null is a little bit different because in this case, I think it'd be kind of a zero. So I think that the situation. What about email? What about email? Yeah, email is probably a good one. It's like we're, you're only going to have an email address for a very small percentage, and the rest is uh, just an I don't know. It's not a, it's not a true designation, you know, like it, it is for the, the super user. It's truly saying I don't know, and I don't know if I'm ever going to know. So do you add that to that column, and then your column just keeps your table keeps getting wider and wider as you add new columns for things like that? And uh, if not, you know. Do you break it out into another table? What's what's the line there? Is there a percentage? Well, so I have another example, just so that we make sure that the jury gets the equal uh, leading here in either direction. And that is, um, so you gave the example of a user with like permission, right? Uh, in, your, in your case, I think it was like super user permission. Well, let's go with email because so, that one makes more sense. Because a super well, user, like you said, that's always going to be a zero or one, right? Like that's that's pretty much what that is. But, but, most, but isn't everyone going to have an email address if they're on your system? No, no. Let's let's just say that it's an internal thing, and maybe they want to put in their personal. Who knows? But but email is something that you. I feel like that's not one out. that people are going to visualize mo- easily as easily though, because more often than not, the pe- person's going to have an email address. Okay, credit card. I mean, e- either way, the, the 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 super the permission one was actually a really good example, regardless of the data type, right? It was the, the point being that you're going to have some small percentage of time where it's not going to be true a majority of time, right? So the the flip side to that example would be uh, address or contact information, right? If you more often than not, a street two is going to be null. Okay, at least here in the U.S., right? More often than not, that's going to be a null uh, field, right? And and if you're not crazy about that example, then the other example would be, and this is why I say contact information, um, extension for a phone number. More often than not, extension is going to be null, right? So you know those are those are the two kind of contact type uh, scenarios where. It's going to be needed, but you wouldn't necessarily break out a separate table for street two or extension. Or right? would you? So so let's take uh, both well, of those examples. I mean, examples. that's what we're trying to find out in the so, survey. But let's take both of those examples, and let's take it even a step further just to illustrate the point. So it, the reason I don't like address and I really don't like phone numbers is because there's multiple types, and usually that's a one-to-many relationship, right? We're kind of talking about one-to-one relationships, but... Let's just say, for instance, that you had home address on the contact and you also had home phone on the contact. So the extension and the street two are both in question. So now here comes the other part of that, right? Do you, when you break this out, do you create a table that is contact address supplemental? And then do you create another one, contact phone number supplemental? You see? Yes. I mean, I hear you. I I mean, if I'm just saying my vote now, is that because well, it just, just sounds like Joe did. So, so what's your thought, Joe? Uh, I think if we um, do a slightly uh, different example that I think we might be able to kind of clear up the question a little bit more. And we had talked about vehicles earlier, right? And a vehicle could be a plane, a car, you know, whatever. So what if we've got a table vehicles that has 
cars in it, planes, trains, bicycles. And now we want to uh, add essentially a column to a vehicle to track the size of the gas tank. Well, trains don't have gas tanks, right? Bicycles don't have gas tanks. So now we're adding a column that doesn't apply to every row in this table. So I'm trying to figure out at what point do we break that out to a separate table if it's a one-to-one relationship still? Like, is it, you know... Do we break it out because it only applies to a certain percentage of the rows? Do we break it out because it's a logical unit? Do we keep it in the same table because it's a a one-to-one relationship? Like, what do we do with that? Yeah, it's an interesting question because if you go to normal form, you would basically break each one out into their own tables if there was ever a possibility of it being null, right? Yep. Like that's that's the rule of complete normality. What what is it? Third normal form. Like I think that's the uh, the best one. But so it, I mean, really, it, it's an interesting business question because what you're talking about, like size of gas tank. If you add that to a million records and it's null most of the time, there's space being reserved on those records for that data. Yep, and it's, it's messy, you know, because next, you know, it, I'm adding number of steam pistons for my trains and number of spokes for my bicycles, you know. Yep, and then the question is, at that point, do you just create a sub table of that for trains, one for planes? A database person would probably say, yes, you do that. But, but then you start talking about performance and all kinds of stuff. But really, it boils down to, do you care about relational data more than you care about performance or ease of access, right? That's really what it boils down to. So we definitely are curious as to what this survey is going to turn out, because this was a real-world problem that came up, and there were several answers thrown out. Like, and I don't think anybody agreed on any one of them. <laughs> yeah, we know we love our controversies. <laughs> yeah, we do. So... That is our survey. And that's the end of the newspaper metaphor. <laughs> oh, wait. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to get back to that for a second. Uh, no, no. Just, just kidding. No, no. <laughs> I will click end. <laughs> well, uh, somewhat relevant, uh, the next topic in objects and data structures is train wrecks. Uh, and in this case, they're actually specifically talking about um, function call dot function call dot function call. So what my kind of prime example there is like jQuery, where you kind of do like a... You know, dollar sign, and you get your uh, a tags right, and then you do dot class equals this dot um, underline equals true, or you know whatever, and, and you basically chain these methods together so you get dot 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 dot. Oftentimes on the same lines, and so it ends up kind of looking like a train on the in the editor. So here's is that I, a problem though? Well, <laughs> it, it is if you're if you're trying to stick to the uh, law of Demeter there, right? Yes. So here's this great little thing that I thought was like so beautiful that we talked about in the last episode that kind of made it relevant here, which was in the, I don't know, yeah, we were talking about um, horizontal uh, width and spacing and whatnot in the in the last episode. Right, as well as the newspaper metaphor, <laughs> and and uh, there was this question that I think oh, I think Alan asked that Joe answered, which was like, "Well, how many times do you dot your method?" Right, like you know, like when do you break it out to a new line? Like how many dots do you go before you break it out to the new line? Two. And, the, and Joe said two. He's like, "Well, you know, you do like very, you know, some var dot." Method dot method dot method. You know, by the time you get to that second dot, you're onto a new line, right? Yep. Three is too many. And, uh, 
Well, well, apparently, apparently, uh, more than one. If it's uh, you know a method that's going to return back another object, right? Hmm. And that you're going to then call another method on that object. This book needs an edit. But but wait a second, though. <laughs> In fairness, though, go, going back to what it said earlier about classes need to know, or they can they can do things with classes that they know about that they created, right? Like I would argue that that's what that is. Like no, 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 it's not. You have a you have an object in your in your cl- in your uh, in that function, right? All right, or method, whatever you want, they, uh, whichever one you cho- per- choose to call it. Yep. Um, you have a class, some object in that method, and you call dot some method on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if you dot again, you're now interacting with what that object return returned right which means you now are aware of the internals of that method because it exposed it because you're expecting it to return back a particular thing yeah but again that's something you created so you're no, no, aware no. of its children as no, well no, no. and its children no, it doesn't have to be something you created it could be it could be uh you're using something in the net framework right so you do Oh, God, I can't think of a good example here, Joe. I don't know if you got one off the top of your head, but I have like, one, uh, but not dot net. You know, what, back what to our, our checkout example. You know, we said, uh, you know, we were talking about checkout. You're buying some stuff. Imagine you've got a checkout method and it takes a person and you do some stuff with it, like getting their name, their email, whatever. But you also get person dot billing address dot zip code, right? There's three dots there. It's, you know, three references. So you're starting to dig deeper there and you're making a train. But you're aware of it because you're the one that instantiated the person or it was passed into you. And so everything that it I, I would I would argue that you're not breaking any kind of chain of dependencies there because you already instantiated it's not, it's that not. person. That person instantiates its but its billing address. The law of demeanor has nothing to do with chain of, of dependencies there. But but the whole thing that we said is it can access things within its classes or things it creates. If it creates that person, then by that very line of thinking, in my mind, it also has access to whatever that person has access to. Like, I don't think that's I, – I, unless I'm totally missing something in that, that law, it doesn't make sense that you can't interact with whatever that class you created. And by getting its billing address, if that's what it exposes, you are well within the bounds of the class that you knew about. I think Demeter would disagree. Unfortunately, if you if Pop, you did maybe. if you had okay, let's go to the and and I was trying to look for an, uh, a real life example here and, and uh, fell flat, but so I missed the example that Joe said. But I think it was something along the lines of if you had a customer and you said dot get payment method. And then some payment method was returned, and then you said dot get billing address, right? Then now you're you are intimately aware of what get payment method is going to return, and so you know about its internals, right? And what it's going to what it's going to do, right? And you're doing this all inside the same method. And again, keep in mind this whole this whole book is about keeping these methods short, right? Mm-hmm. So really, the idea here is that that should have been done like. It, the the get billing address call should be done in another method, right? It's not that it can't be done in the same class necessarily. It's just that it wouldn't be done in the same method. Yeah, it's right? just you're you're doing the puppet master thing. You're reaching out to stuff that are like three and four steps away. And, and I did find an example in .NET Framework is HTTP context, one of my favorites. Haha. HTTP context current session user ID, for example. It's something where your method might take in that context only when it needs a very specific part. And so ideally, you would just pass that 
user ID in. But if your function is doing other stuff with like the session or the you know the current context or whatever, then it's kind of um, you know it's useful to cheat that and just pass in a higher level and pluck out the stuff that you need. But that's a sign that you're doing the pupper messages, pup message stuff again. You're doing too much in that method. And even I mean, though that's the, what I would do. The op- the the example <laughs> that he gives here in the book is like you have context dot get options dot get scratch direct get scratch dot get absolute path. I would totally so do you, that. You, you, I mean, we've all done it, but uh, you know the the point is is that it's you it's too much intimate knowledge in that one method that breaks the law of the meter. I mean, that goes back to one of the previous chapters where they say try and keep things on the same level, right? And, yeah. And and yes, you could do that with refactoring out and you know, creating new accessor methods and that kind of stuff. So yeah, totally. Well, uh, it's funny you say accessor because he actually makes it a point to say like, okay, well, you know, is this breaking the law or not? Right. So if these things that are being returned back are just, uh, if they're just data, then it's not, it's not a, uh, violation. Right. Hmm. So, so if these are simply, if get options dot get scratched or dot get, uh, absolute path, if each one of those is just simply an accessor method, then and it's just re- it's just returning back data, then it's not a violation. But if each one is an object and it's having to do something to figure out, like, okay, well, what is the scratch directory, right? Let me go and query this other thing, and like, oh, here's some environment variables, and let me parse the environment variables, and you know, then it had to do a lot of logic in order to determine the scratch directory, and then it's like, okay, here's the scratch directory, and then based off of that, it's like, okay, but what's the absolute path of that? Okay, well, I gotta go and do this all all this interpretation. Then that's where it's breaking the law, right? Like if it's, um, I can't help but think about it like as I say that, but. I feel like that kind of almost supports what we just said. User dot get payment method dot pay, right? You didn't do any logic there. So it, it, how's that any worse than an accessor? I guess is what I'm getting at. Like, you know, if you're going to go all it's the way down. It's not worse get, than the accessor. Again, he was saying that if you, if it's just simply accessor methods, then it's not breaking the law of Demeter. If it's, but if there's it's no logic. Back objects. That's what I'm saying. Like, if you're not actually using logic, right? Like, you literally say get payment method dot pay. What what we're saying here is that's going too far, right? Like, because you dug into your person, you say go get the payment method and pay. So you chain down two levels, right? So it sounds like that's kind of not allowed. Which I mean, for better or for worse, we're all going to do what we need to do to make it happen, but. I feel like maybe that's one of those cases where it's like, am I really going to break that out into another method? Right. Well, why not take the billing method? Like, why go through the customer? <clears throat> and the answer is because you probably already have the customer for some other reason, right? So right. it's it's just a, a matter of doing a lot of things in one spot. And so you're doing the puppet master thing, right? You're dealing with the customer. You're dealing with payments. You're dealing with other stuff. And this is where I was saying, like, it could still be done in your same class, but it should be in a different method. So you would pass in the billing method or the payment method or whatever, uh, you know, whatever was more specific, you'd pass that into another method if you're, you know, in order to adhere to this, to this law of the meter, right? Yeah, that's interesting. So we also have a note in here though about like using the fluent, right? Like, so if you're doing like a link statement or something like that, uh, yep, and I thought about this one actually. The deal with that is though, is at least with um, you know, like a jQuery style, is you tend to return yourself. 
So in yeah. that case, you know, I'm kind of okay with it, and I don't really think that violates. But the, uh, well, I guess it depends on which side of jQuery you're doing. Because if you're saying, "Get me all the A tags," "Get me the ones that do this," "Get me the ones that," you are shrinking. Um, but it is kind of at the same level of abstraction. So I'm kind of a two minds about it. But uh, I, I like Fluent interfaces. I feel like they're readable, and I feel like the whole reason of to avoid trainer is because it's not very readable and it's spaghetti-ish. But I feel like Fluent is not that. So I feel like Fluent gets passed for me. Well, it's interesting, too, because there's an article I read and shared a long time ago that I think was also by uh, Bob Martin, I think, that was using pipelines for for data. So instead of, like, four eaches, so, like, the a way that a lot of people have done things historically is, you know, in your function you might have list, my list of people equal new list of people, right? And then you'd have a for each that would loop through and try and find out if any people match a certain criteria and then add them to your list above. Well, there's an article and I'll have to find the link. But basically the whole idea is, hey, yo, instead of doing these for eaches with all these if conditions inside of them, just do a, a link type query to where you say people.select.where this equal this dot where and then that way you populate that list and it's very human readable right like you look okay i'm getting people where their last name is smith and where they are over the age of 30 right instead of nested for for each loops that that keep checking different conditions and then if it meets that condition adding it to some list that was defined outside so that whole thing too is also another dot train wreck i guess but that's more a sign of i guess the language than anything else right but is it though because because in the example that you're talking about though it's data that's being returned so you do your dot select and your dot where i mean like each step of the way and then going back to joe's jquery example where you're constantly refining the list you're still just working with data you're not getting back some new um completely different type of object that you have to know that, like, oh, yeah, this object has this other method that I can call, right? But like, you can. You can totally project to a new object, right? In that entire flow of things, you can project whatever you want. It could be a new object. It could be a different type of object. It could be whatever. I mean, okay, sure, we could we could always write bad code if that's what we're talking about, and we I, could that, you know, would, sort it out. I would argue and... that that's not necessarily <laughs> bad code because what, what if you just need – what if you just need the the person ID, first name, and last name, and you don't want to return all the information about a person across the wire? It doesn't make sense for you to do anything other than dot .select and then new object, first name, last name, ID, right? Like, that's not bad practice. Oh, uh, in the case where you're talking about, like, an uh, anonymous type that's being... Well, yeah, I guess yeah. it couldn't be anonymous. That's what I'm talking about. That's not bad code. That's, it couldn't be that's anonymous needs. in that example, though, but yeah. Th- that's um, just needs-based, and I guess that's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at. <sighs> Yeah, I still I feel like that example is still data. I mean, it's a very big data example, though. Um, at least yeah. in my mind. I mean, again, like we've all done some of this stuff. It just, I guess, where it would be w- more uh, weird. Maybe if you did that projection, and then instead of just returning the projected result, you were to do more dot chains afterwards then that's where maybe it would get, in at least in my mind, out of the data realm, right? Yeah. The, it, by the way, it wasn't Bob Martin. It was Martin Fowler. So I found the link. We will shove it here in the show notes right underneath this. So, potato, potato. Yeah. Yeah. 
Martin it, something, right? <laughs> it does remind me. Um, actually, uh, Martin Fowler wrote, wrote oh, sorry, Martin Fowler wrote the next chapter in this book. It was not written by Bob Martin. Oh, so it really? Looks like everything we've talked about so far has been written by um, Bob Martin. So good to know. Awesome. Cool. All right. Did we already kind of talk about hybrids earlier? Well, we yeah, but it. I wasn't sure if uh, Joe, it sounded like Joe had more he wanted to say about it, but maybe I misunderstood. Yes, but uh, in the meantime, I did mean, mean to say Michael Feathers, not Martin Fowler. So <laughs> <laughs> you guys got, uh, everyone's got this straight, right? Uh, there's so There name. was an M name in there. We're not great so. with names. <laughs> hey, That's wait, was excellent. that my M name? Oh, uh, <laughs> wait, no. Oh, yeah, we uh, you, got, you got the initials right. Yeah, so uh, the deal is uh, basically uh, talking about hybrids, um, <laughs> where we've got uh, I can't help but laugh. <laughs> <laughs> objects mixed with uh, data structures. So we've got a class that's got some properties, and it's also got some methods. And um, it, it's pretty stark on it. Um, there's uh, a nice quote I don't have in front of me right now, but uh, the way I think of it is, uh, I'm writing it is basically inferring that it's kind of the worst of both worlds because uh, it's got properties which are just begging to be modified by other procedural code. And then you've got methods which are supposed to kind of act on its own properties. And so it's just a, a mishmash of, you know, people kind of poking around with your stuff and then doing your own. So it's, it's you're kind of like letting the world mess with your insides, which is not comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so this is like some sort of surgery. Yeah, this is, is why we wear time. clothes. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was like episode number one where, yeah, we got off to an awkward start, folks. <laughs> so, so can you think of any good examples of a hybrid, um, you know, like let's say in the .NET world? That just exist out there in the wild? Uh, uh, yeah, sure. I've never really gone digging. Don't know. Well, you know, right. one thing I kind of... I'm going to give you one. I'll, sure. I'll give you one. Okay. Sound, go ahead, Joe. Um, I wasn't .NET. I was just thinking about an example where, um, where you know, where you've got properties and you've got methods. And then um, I was thinking about dependency injection, which is kind of a common technique uh, for you to basically have um, properties on your class. So you specify them at the class level uh, or the object level, rather, um, rather than passing them in as, as arguments. And that lets you do things like dependency injection where you get things injected at runtime so you can kind of have different services and whatnot, different dependencies uh, specified at like, you know, app time and at test time. And that's an example where you do want to have properties and you do want to have methods in the same class. So there's that. Well, uh, the the best example that I could think of that, for better or for worse, that might be considered a hybrid here would be the date time structure in .NET. Hmm. Because it is a structure, but you really, you can very easily forget that it is with all of the methods that it has, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's an awkward case. I know some people have mentioned before being kind of controversial. It's got, yeah, I'm not big on smart properties either. I think that's kind of part of the confusion. Oh, you don't like ones where gets have implementations? No, I just think it's kind of confusing. It's unintuitive. Hmm. I don't like that datetime.now doesn't equal datetime.now. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> Unless there's some crazy optimization stuff going on. 
Um, oh, yeah, uh, here's an example. I can't get behind that smart property, though. I mean, yeah, they, I mean, they maybe in that one example, but I guess as a general rule, though, I, I think it can be a little bit more expressive sometimes, or it feels like that. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, yeah, it looks pretty. I just don't like the date time dot now. I mean, I still do smart properties all the time. Um, but how about mm-hmm. this one? Uh, SQL command. You can do stuff like say, you know, command equals new SQL command. Then you could say command dot timeout equals this. Command dot whatever equals that. And then at the end of it, you can say, you know, command dot uh, run, or you pass it something else to run it. I kind of forget. But it's just an example. It's got methods mixed in with things that you can set. And it's kind of weird that you can like run your query and then set the timeout. You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so it's just a matter of um, allowing people to to mess with your internals. Well. Um, I mean, that is an interesting example, but I can't help but be a little bit distracted by it that doesn't it make sense that Joe would make bring up this weird example that would be SQL related? <laughs> like, doesn't that just seem so <laughs> fitting? <laughs> I love me some SQL. He, he does. Do you? I love handcrafting my SQL <laughs> and my SQL <laughs> commands and executing them. Do you, uh, do you really? Yeah. It's a three-letter <laughs> acronym. <laughs> that yeah. would uh mention but uh this is a clean show. <laughs> so so what's this hiding structure that we have here? Yeah, there was this um there was another comment and I feel like we talked might have talked about this too in a previous chapter. Um actually god, I know we did. I don't remember the name of it though. Um but uh you know, we should be telling our object to do something and not asking about its internals. Right? Do, do you, does that ring a bell for either of you? Don't remember uh, one of these chapters talking about something like that? Yeah, there, was a, there was even a name for it. I can't remember it now. I, I didn't really get much out of this little section. Um, I, I think I'm just missing something, except for I did notice it used the word admixture, like A D M I X T U R E, which is very distracting to me. So I've had a hard time focusing on anything except for that weird word. Yeah, what you're talking about. Outlaw oh. is right here. It says if e-text is an object, we should be telling it to do something. We should not be asking about its internal. So yeah, that's totally what it is. It, it goes back to the command query separation. That's the what I. That's the name I was trying to remember. Okay. Uh, um, going back to chapter three on functions, right? Was that you know you should ask it to do something. You're not trying to get you know how many gallons of gas does this tank have you know uh, left or like what's the capacity in gallons. You're trying to really just say, like, tell me. You figure out what you got to do to tell me what percentage of fuel is left. Yeah. Oh, and your admixture thing. So that that also goes back to one of the previous chapters where they're saying don't mix things that are different levels of of depth in the same method. That's really what he was saying, right? That bothered him that this whole get the path and going down and doing all this stuff was really there just to create a file. Right. So. Yep. Right. All right. So everybody's favorite type of object. A poco. It's the DTO. <laughs> I feel like I feel like if that was a a car, it would not be made by Pontiac though. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like a lot of people don't talk about DTOs anymore. I I don't really oh, hear really? that those words. Uh, am I wrong about that? Did we I use something them. else? We, I guess we use the word model a lot of times when we mean, uh, you know, the same thing, data transfer object. Yeah, you, you know what? You, I think you're right. I do use DTOs, or I use the actual 
acronym DTO when it literally is just something that's being used to marshal something into and out of a method somewhere. Yep. So I, I do call them that. Yeah, I like things like Entity Framework go and they you know g- generate all those classes. It's basically um, we'll get it to it in a minute, um, but it, it does generate um, the data transfer objects is basically you know simple properties, but it's also got those um, kind of save methods and some other niceties that you can call on it, which are just extensions. But um, I guess that kind of moves it into Active Record territory. Yep. And I didn't really have have a lot of feelings about that. Like, okay, yeah, I mean, if it's a DTO, when I where do, I guess I guess my feeling on it was like, where do you draw the line, right? So you have this. It's a DTO if it only has data, but now is it still DTO if it has these properties plus one method? If I add two methods, if I gone too far, and now it's now it's hybrid or now it's not a DTO anymore. Man, I or is it three myth? <laughs> I feel like this is going back to our, our survey with the table on newspaper metaphor. I mean, sorry, table column width. Uh, we got confused there. Man, um, I actually ran into this today <laughs> and it, it kind of irritated me as there was this DTO. There really wasn't a DTO because it had these methods like get from record or create as params or whatever. And I saw it and I was like, man, I hate the name of this. And and I didn't change it, but I added my own method to it. <laughs> it was like I feel I feel really dirty about this, and I feel like calling this a DTO is wrong because it implies that it's a stupid object, right? Yeah. It really does imply that all you're doing is setting properties on this and then using those properties somewhere else. They are supposed to be exposed properties. But as soon as you start adding functionality to it, it is no longer just a transfer object. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Um, Prior to to this book, I you know the whole term active record wasn't something that I was familiar with. So I have always just considered like DTOs as being plain dumb, you know, uh, just data, right? I mean, it if you go back to like the days of like a C, for example, then I equate them to a struct, right? Um, and and this idea of having like you know a some you know some number of methods in it that maybe it's still, um, you know, a special form of a DTO called an active record. I was, uh, I guess, I guess. Yeah. You know, uh, you guys just remind me talking about the DTO. Um, would you say that's a good signal? Like if you're adding methods to classes that you're probably doing things more procedurally. And if you're adding classes to a project, then you're probably doing things more OOE. Um... I mean, I feel like this is a trick question from a previous conversation in this chapter. You know, I... uh, (laughs) Not that one's better than the other. It's just, you know. That's a a tough one. Um, I mean, I guess it really depends on the situation, right? Like if... Generally speaking, if you're adding a method to a class... So let's go back to the whole simple shape thing, right? So if you have a triangle, circle, and a square, and you currently have... Uh, get perimeter and get area, you know, maybe uh, what's another thing that you can do on it? Well, let's just say that you only have get area and you want to add get perimeter. You have to add that to multiple classes. So you're adding a method and you're doing it in a very OO way, right? Because you have to add it to all these things if you make it polymorphic, right? Mm -hmm. So 
so I, I think there's a line, right? Like if you just find yourself willy nilly adding a bunch of methods to a particular class, then maybe not. But in certain situations, like maybe you are trying to refactor and break out things into a more, you know, newspaper narrative type of way of doing things. Um, so you end up getting like a bunch of private methods in there. So I don't know that that's necessarily bad either. And that could still be a very OO way of doing things. And it's some people who argue that oh, is not even the right way to do things. But that's true. Do but, people still use beans? Do, do Java people do beans? Yeah, dude, I've seen them. Yeah. Well, that's one thing I was gonna I was gonna bring up though is that uh, several times in this in this chapter they make the point that uh, you know beans throw all a lot of this out the door because they'll have um, get or set methods for no other reason than uh, because they have to adhere to some bean standard based on the framework that, you know, they're playing with at that time. But I kind of wondered too, though, I mean, isn't that a little dated? I mean, you're saying that you you still see it, but I mean, it's definitely a very Java thing. It is. And it's a very Java thing in very specific Java worlds. Yeah, because it's Java beans. And are those Java worlds still that big a thing? I don't, I don't know because I'm not in those worlds. Yeah. I and mean, haven't been for a while. I've seen generators that do that stuff, like on somewhat recent projects that I've worked with. I mean, like, cause, cause my experience with it is very dated because it goes back to WebSphere, right? Uh, yeah. Well, that was big time. You don't, yeah, yeah. Java beans. You, do you hear that. a lot of people talk about WebSphere these days? No. I, at least in my circle, I don't, but maybe your mileage may vary. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, the active record thing kind of reminds me of Entity Framework, right? It's that's very similar type stuff. The dot save, or even um, see, I don't think of the active records as Entity Framework. I th- I feel like what Entity Framework returns back are just straight up objects. I don't oh, consider them active records. No, you can totally because there's them a and do total dot save. Right? There's a truckload of methods that it re- it includes. But you can still like dot where save. Yeah, you can dot save. So if you make a bunch of changes to it, it tracks the properties. Okay, so you're saying the active record is defined by having a dot save method? It's basically because I, my point is is that it's the entity framework objects have a bunch of other methods associated to it. Oh, it does have additional things. But so I, that's why I'm saying it's not a special DTO. It, I'm saying it's a straight up object. It's an active record. So like a DTO is not necessarily. I, I, our special forms. Of, okay, so I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of falls along the line of active record, in my opinion, in that you modify an object and you tell it to save its state back to whatever it's. Well, I mean, was. for the for the record, though, like in here, he's not saying that it's uh, necessarily an active record that it has to have a save method. He does say that they typically have navigational methods like right. save and find. Right. Right. Um. I, I would say they're very similar. Like, I don't think it's called that in the .NET world, but they are very similar. Mm. And it looks I think like there's Ruby, some chatter about that, actually. Yeah, Ruby Ruby's, specifically calls it active record. Active record, yeah. I was going to say, I know I've seen that in their world, and I'm not in their world very much. Um, But, yeah. Yeah, there's a, actually a pretty good answer here. We'll have a link in the show notes. I'm um, talking about the differences between entity framework and active record. So, like where it's similar and where it departs, and uh, it's a it's kind of a long read, but it's it's pretty interesting. Awesome. Huh. Coolness. Well, yeah, that's one your more thing for, for me to be podcast. corrected about. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, no, no. It's, no, it's, I think it's kind of agreeing and disagreeing with all of us at the same time. No, I'm just making a <laughs> joke, man. Making a joke. Oh. Don't yeah. take away from my joke. All right. So that... Uh, well, we're going to wrap this up, but I, I wanted to point out there were two really good quotes that, that closed this chapter out that uh, I, I would be remiss if we didn't say. And that is that objects expose behavior and hide data. Data structures expose data and have no significant behavior. Yep. Which is a really great takeaway from this chapter. Yep. So with that, uh, in our resources we like, I'm pretty certain maybe we'll be including a link to this book. I think I think once or twice we may have already done it a few, six, seven times. Yep, and also, again, remember, if you'd like to win a copy of this book and see the stuff that we've been going through on here, <clears throat> definitely leave a comment on this episode at uh, www.codingblocks.net slash episode 51. Yeah, it's definitely good All stuff right. to think about. And it's short. Yeah. And now we get into Alan's favorite portion of the show, I'm not sure why he's making that face, though, for everyone watching the feed. My bootay hurts. Um, <laughs> there was definitely some, some oddities there. As I was trying to introduce this next section, <laughs> I promise. video now, too, so that's rough. <laughs> I promise that no matter what face he just made as I was trying to introduce this section, this is absolutely Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yes, sir. All right, so what you got? All right, so uh, for those of you that are fans of the Atom editor, um, if you ever find yourself working in a file and you got you know your tree list, your navigation tree over there on your left of all your files, and you're and uh, you know maybe you've forgotten how you know, whatever file you're in, you've, you it's not in sync with where your uh, tree is on the left hand side, and you want to get those back in sync. You can, on a Windows machine, Control-Shift-Backslash, or on a Mac, Command-Shift-Backslash, and it will sync your current file to the tree uh, so that you can get back, you know, if you needed to see the other files near that one for some reason. Love it. I find that to be a handy little feature that I use more often than I care to admit. But do you actually use Atom that often? Um, Spoiler alert. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've actually switched from uh, WebStorm to Atom. Wow. So so uh, if you recall, uh, I think that was also Connect Tech um, a few episodes back. And I had talked about watching one of the presentations and the guy was using uh, Atom and the various plugins that he had and, and how he was able to just navigate through it so quickly, right? And uh, specifically in his talk he was doing uh it was a react talk with uh unit testing and you know as he was doing his unit test he was able to just see his results all within the atom uh ide and uh yeah it was not only was this his talk just um you know a very well uh, put together presentation but it was actually a very persuasive use case for using atom that's really cool so uh, i have uh at least for the at least for the time being, made the switch to Adam, and I gotta say, I really love it. <laughs> really love it, man. It's uh, it's very fast. 
Better than uh, like Visual Studio Code? Um, well, if you recall, um, back when Code came out, there was, uh, you know, shortly after Code came out, I did um, kind of like a, a take, a comparison of them on this show, of Atom versus Code, because they're both based off of Electron. Um, so, you know, under the, under the, under the hood there, they're both the same internals. Right. And there are some things that I liked better about code. And I even like commented back to Microsoft, uh, like, Hey, this is like really, uh, odd. Like for example, I don't remember exactly, but like one of the examples was like, there was a file delete and a file save all option. And then they were dangerously right close to, to one another. Um, and I was always afraid to hit that option. Yeah. But, um, after seeing Adam with all of the uh, plugins that uh, this guy was using in, in the presentation, it just kind of made me switch to going to Adam. And now, I mean, I guess, long story short, I, maybe I don't care so much because, you know, they are both electron-based, but I care so much because all the plugins that I'm using are Adam. Right. And uh, so, I, and I've just kind of gotten used to it. And so, like, as I'm going along on this path of using Atom more and more, then I'm like, okay, well, you know, I want to know like where the key, uh, the, you know, what, where's the similar functionality that I had over here? Like, so for example, um, comparing to visual studio, not, not code, but just plain old visual studio. If you were in a file and you wanted to see it in sync with the tree, uh, this in the solution explorer, um, above the solution explorer, there's this little icon that has two arrows po- pointed in opposite directions, right? Uh, one arrow above the other, and that would sync the file to the tree list, right? Or in WebStorm, if you wanted to uh, do the same action, there's a um, looks like uh, a target. Yeah, a little target symbol, uh, like like if you were looking through the scope of a gun, for example. Um, you know the the uh, what do they call that? The the reticle. Um, you know, and that would sync the file to the tree. So now that I've switched over to Adam, I'm like, okay, like this is an example of like, man, how do I switch back? Like, how do I, I'm in this file and I only got to this file because I did something like a, um, a control P and just started typing in the name of the file and then like, yep, press enter. And you know, now I'm working that file, but oh gosh, now I'm in this file. Wait, there was a, this is, I'm looking at the controller for this file for this class there's a corresponding model that's right next to it. Where is that? I'd rather not retype all that again so I can just control shift backslash and oh, there it is and double click it or something like that, right? Like, or if you're just trying to like browse around and see the other stuff around, like I, that's where I kind of find that being able to keep the file in sync to the, um, to the tree, you know, on a need basis handy, right? In, in that kind of scenario. But yeah, I've, I've really been digging at them. Cool. All right. Well, mine actually came from uh, Jay Bellina in Slack today. So we were talking about various different ways to to kind of marshal data to and from proc calls. And the old school way that we've probably all done is like if you need to pass in a list of things like IDs that you need data for, the way that you used to do it in, in the old days before these even existed was – you would basically pass in a string, like a comma-delimited list of ID numbers, and then you might have a function in SQL Server that would split that string and turn it into a table that you could then join on, right? Like, that was the way that we've done things a lot. Well, Jay Bellina actually hit me with, hey, why don't you just pass a table-valued parameter 
from C Sharp up to SQL Server. And I'll be honest, I didn't even know you could do it. Never really thought about it. But uh, I've got a link here. And in the link, you can go up there and you can actually, from C Sharp, take a list of data and pass in, I think it's called a structured, um, yeah, SQL DB type dot structured. And you could literally pass in a data table to get the information. So that's really kind of cool. If you have a... If you have a stored procedure and it will take a table value parameter and it has a particular schema set up and you do that same thing in your C-sharp code, you can pass the entire table in and filter it that way. So that's kind of sweet. No more parsing lists and stuff. So I do want to play with this to find out what the performance is like, see if they're kind of on par with each other. Uh, but that is pretty awesome. Cool. And... Um my tip of the week is a YouTube channel that was uh, recently introduced to me by our friend Yipter. And uh, the guy's name is Sirajali. And he makes uh, really cool AI videos um, doing stuff. Um, and he kind of specializes in doing small, little, easy things. So it'll be like 10 lines of code that can uh, play a video game, like an old Atari game or something. And he puts all the code up there, um, does a lot with the open AI. And the videos are really cool. They're really well produced. Um, he's got uh, just amazing hair. So I, I recommend everyone <laughs> check it out. And uh, yeah, because it is so short, you can literally watch a little 10-minute video, take those 10 lines of code, and then just start exploring this. So if you have any interest in like machine learning or AI, then this is a good thing to get into. Man, I'm totally not watching it. You said he has hair. I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, he's got amazing <laughs> hair. It like it wobbles to and fro, and he dances his head around. It's amazing. I really thought this was going to be I, like uh, I, I clicked into it to see. I was really kind of surprised because I thought this, um, Joe, you had shared another YouTube channel here recently, or yes, at least I thought it was Cody Math. Yes, yep. that was the one I thought this was going to be. What was it again? Uh, this Share one, that one too. Yeah, that one was my tip last week. Um, that, that one oh, did all it? sorts of Maybe cool, that's like, why I'm thinking of it. <laughs> that one was really cool too, because it would um, use a couple of, like common libraries to do things like drawing really cool fractals and stuff. And so it was just a nice way to watch a 15-minute video and learn something completely new and cool. And that's right, because we talked about the, the fractals, because Alan did some fractals at uh, the summit. I did. Yeah, yeah okay. I made organic trees. So okay. some, some <laughs> videos here are like... Build a yeah, and there's some drawing trees. I think very similar to what you're doing in F Sharp there. Um, videos like build a neural network in four minutes, or TensorFlow in five minutes, or um, you know how to write an AI bot for any video game in ten minutes. So cool stuff. Very cool. Yep. All right. Well, we hope you've enjoyed another chapter here as we uh, make our way through clean code. This was chapter six, uh, drawing the lines between objects and data structures. Uh, as well as procedural versus OO. And uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And be sure to give us a review. Uh, you can visit www.codingblocks.net slash review, and you can find easy links there to iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, and if you have other places where you found us, let us know. Yep. And uh, make sure uh, while you're up there, check out our show notes, our examples, uh, discussion, and more. Yeah, and send your feedback, questions, and rants to the Slack channel. And follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head over to CodingBlocks.net and find all our social links and uh, other stuff. Yep. Awesome. And that is a wrap on episode 51. Yeah, yeah. Five one baby. Woo! No, wait, what? I can't do that now. That's just all right. 51. <laughs> I'm stopping. Um, uh, all right. <laughs>